0: Hi Natalie. Hey Tara, what's up? <laughs> Nothing much. How are you? I'm okay.
1: I'm ready for the weekend. What an Me intense intense too. week this has been.
0: <laughs> I've also had an intense week. Is the whole world feeling this? Like I feel like every time we come into our side job here at the record store, we're always talking about like, oh, I'm so tired, what a week. Is everyone yeah, just know. overworked and overplayed and everything just like yeah. stretched thin?
1: It's definitely sensory overload this week with lots of different things. So I just need like 48 hours where I unplug all of my technology and pull the drapes and just be quiet for a while. Be yeah. much needed.
0: Yeah. Put on a record and do some crafts or something. Yeah.
1: Do some analog self-care.
0: <laughs> yeah. Actually, I've been, this is not quite analog, but yeah, for Christmas, I... Got some resin craft stuff. So I've been making guitar picks and 45 adapters with resin and just playing records. And it's been really relaxing. Yeah.
1: Crafting heals the soul. I like that. I like that you've got like a musical connection too. I like to knit. I'm almost done knitting a sweater. That's fun. Oh, not very musical,
0: but yeah. (laughs) I get pretty, like, knitting takes so long to knit something. Yeah, you need that instant Something gratification. That you could use, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and resin doesn't have that instant gratification. I do have UV resin, which does have that instant gratification, but the other kind that I use is like you have to wait 24 to 48 hours. And so, yeah, not the same, but a little bit faster than knitting a sweater. Or I mean, I guess it depends on how fast you're, you are at knitting.
1: Well, that's precisely why I like knitting, because it forces you to slow down. It forces you to like be engaged at every point in the process. And it just takes as long as it's going to take. You know what I mean? You can't rush yeah. it. You can't take shortcuts. That's actually what I what I like about it.
0: Man, I, yeah. That is like my whole life, trying to rush, trying to, I can barely sit down to watch a movie these days.
1: Yeah. I can't Isn't that still. weird? I'm the same way. <laughs> I have like commitment issues when it comes to watching something longer than 45 minutes. I'm like,
0: yeah, oh you're like, this is two hours of my life I'm about to commit to. Like, right, this is really right. good. It has to be. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the same way.
1: <laughs> Got to learn to slow down and take our time. It's important. It's
0: true. I mean, technology has enabled us, I think, in uh, moving faster, being faster, doing things faster and having less time to to just sit in the moment or even take our time with a process.
1: Yeah, but we're not poo-pooing all over technology. We, are, we do love it. It has made life right. so much better, especially for us as musicians. We've made like tons of strides and we've got a lot of things we owe to technology um, for allowing us to create ideas and share with the public in the way that we can today. I think we should uh give some props to the innovations that happened in tech for music. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I love that discussion always.
1: Cuz we Sounds sometimes fun. take it for granted. Like stuff is so much easier now and I don't think people understand like how hard it must have been back in the day to have such creative people with such big ideas and not have the kinds of tools we have today to just sort of make it happen on the fly, you know?
0: No, so, for real. I mean, I often when I hear Electronic music, especially, uh, even from just the 90s, like the Chemical Brothers, I just think, what are they doing? How are they doing that when they don't have the same stuff that, you know, producers have now even, and that wasn't even that long ago?
1: That's true. I think that's the mark of a good good musician, a true creative person, is what do you do when you have these constraints, when you don't have all of these tools that make things so easy for you. Like anybody could sit down and put out a record today, like literally anybody. <laughs> but that doesn't yeah. necessarily make you a good composer. You know what I mean? Right. I like to hear those stories of people who didn't have all of these tools and they really had to like get creative, work with unconventional tools, unconventional situations, and they still made magic happen. I think that's really neat.
0: Yeah. Or even just thinking back to, you know, Kate Bush or Peter Gabriel or anyone who was just using the Fairlight synth for the first time and then used, you know, Kate Bush was the first to use it on like a a for real pop record that made it to yeah, the charts. Sure. And she just and she just did it, you know? Or yeah. Susan Chiani, who we've talked about, was classically trained pianist and then was very inspired by synths that were being created at the time and then went on to sort of forge this career making these sounds that no one had really made. It's yeah. Very interesting. It must have been
1: exciting to be around with like those really major innovations in music production were happening, mm-hmm. you know?
0: Yeah. I don't know.
1: You want to talk about it? Why don't we pay Let's homage to some of these awesome tools
0: that we have now? Great. <laughs> Let's do it. I love it. Oh, hi. Welcome to the store. I'm Tara. Hello. I'm Natalie. Let us know if you have any questions. We'll be back here gabbing away. All right. Uh, yeah. Shall I kick it off? Yeah, let's let's do it.
1: Okay. There's lots to choose from here, but I'm really fascinated with looping, especially live looping, which has become such a huge thing I think in recent years. And I've been thinking about it a lot and I wanted to like read up about it and it just the thread kept going further and further and further back. Like there's so much history to this. Ooh. So I'm just going to like go all the way back and let's see where it all began. So, looping. In a modern sense, right? This is a technique that's been popular since like the 50s. But if you want to go way back, think about how repeating patterns in music have been in play since pretty much the dawn of civilization, right? And throughout all cultures, things like vibration and oscillation, you know, they're fundamental to our bodies, to our very existence. So the attraction to repetition and rhythm and melody has always come naturally to us, you know? But um, let's, let's go back to the future a bit because... Otherwise, we'll be in the store all night. (laughs) So let's start at, let's say, 1887, when the gramophone was invented, right? So this was iterating on Edison's tinfoil phonograph, which came about a decade earlier and was really the first piece of tech that could store and playback sound. And the playback part is really important, right? Because sound recording existed before this, like two decades earlier even. Uh, But the phonograph could also play back, albeit only a couple of times before the tinfoil wrapped around the cylinder wore out. So then Alexander Graham Bell improved on this design by creating wax cylinders that were easier to manufacture and were more durable than Edison's tinfoil medium. And Bell named his version the graphophone. So here's a very famous clip of Alexander Graham Bell's recorded voice from 1885. You are my part. We'll play that. Have you heard this clip before? No. So yeah, we get to hear this man's voice. He says, hear my voice, Alexander Graham Bell. It's very grainy, but you can, you can kind of get, get the gist of it. And it's just cool that we get to hear recorded voices from people in the 1800s. Isn't that crazy? It's crazy. Yeah. So there's actually another really funny clip of, I think it's his father where he's like trilling and telling a story like, hi, I'm the gramophone and my, my mother is the phonograph or something. He's just being really goofy. And there's some fun clips if you, if you look them up online. So over time, lots of gradual improvements were made on this design. The biggest innovation was the leap from the phonograph's cylinders with the vertical stylus to the gramophone's flat discs with lateral grooves and a horizontal stylus. Emile Berliner a German immigrant and inventor working in D.C., obtained the U.S. patent for the gramophone and the shellac disc medium. And this was the true precursor to our modern turntables. Again, this was 1887, right? So fun fact, the first commercial gramophones were sold by a toy manufacturer in Germany, and they supplied records made of chocolate.
0: Ooh, I don't know. Cool. now. I'll take one.
1: What right a cool now. toy for music nerds like us to get when we were kids.
0: I mean, Playable I had that like, I think records. it was a Fisher Price where it was like a plastic, those like plastic records. It just had, yeah. you know, lines, but then it had a little, like a little blip, like a chunk, an extra chunk so yeah, yeah. the little thing would go around. I mean, it was like MIDI sounds or whatever. That's but so cute. Do you remember those <laughs> from the 80s? I do, like very vaguely. I do. That's thick so plastic, funny. Thick plastic, like pretty thick. And they're, they're about the size of a 45, but you know, not. And it would move very slowly and have this giant uh, record needle, not really needle thing. Yeah, so funny. (laughs) Oh, baby DJ
1: Pterodactyl. How cute. yeah. (laughs) Have you ever played a chocolate record? I think you can still get those, like maybe like some kind of novelty, I don't know, special order thing. But it's pretty interesting. You could do it for a, a Valentine's Day mix, spin only chocolate records. So anyway, a couple of years later... Danish inventor Valdemar Poulsen created the first magnetic wire recorder. Roughly the way that worked is you'd have a wire pulled across a recording head that would magnetize the wire according to the intensity of the electrical audio signal, like at every instant, right? And then when that wire is pulled across a head that's not supplying an electrical signal, the changing magnetic field from the wire generated an electric current in the head, thereby recreating the original sound. So through the 1920s, inventors were iterating on that wire storage medium and shifted to tape formats. And they went from celluloid strips to photoelectric paper and finally to magnetic tape, pioneered by German engineer Fritz Flumer. He used super thin paper coated in iron oxide. So he sold the rights to his invention, which led to the creation of the modern tape recorder as we know it in 1935, which uses oxide coated plastic tape. And that was huge. So I'm kind of just speeding through this and leaving out lots of names and stuff just to provide some historical context and to highlight the fact that tape recording and turntables as we know them today, you know, these were concepts in incubation since the mid to late 1800s and More to the point, composers had already begun experimenting with loops. Like, for example, Egyptian composer Halim El-Dab, who was one of the earliest pioneers of electronic music. He was already manipulating sound recordings in the early 40s uh, with his his wire recorder. He composed a piece called The Expression of Tsar. Eldab borrowed a wire recorder from a radio station to capture sounds out in the world, particularly an ancient czar ceremony, which is a type of public exorcism or like a healing ceremony. And you can hear these distorted echoes of chanting looping over and over. I find it a little unsettling, (laughs) but um, it's still very cool. Eldab says... I just started playing around with the equipment at the station, including reverberation, echo chambers, voltage controls, and a re-recording room that had movable walls to create different kinds and amounts of reverb. So he believed that by manipulating the sound, he could open up the raw audio and draw out some hidden voices within. So the full 25-minute version of this piece was later recorded onto magnetic tape and presented in 1944 at an art gallery in Cairo. Four years later, French composer Pierre Schaeffer was employing a similar style using recorded sounds as raw material, which became known as concrete music. Tara, do you speak French by any chance?
0: No, not really.
1: Because <laughs> I'm sure these like, these names and these titles would sound much cooler in French. It's it's musique concrète. Ugh, it
0: sounded really American. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, yeah, okay, I'm really good at French. <laughs>
1: Yeah. The core of concrete music was collecting natural sounds recorded on tape or disc and then modifying those sound clips. And then the composition would be however you assembled those clips into a montage. So here's a snippet from Schaefer's famous railway study. And this was quite revolutionary as it did away with the traditional roles of the composer and then the performer right and it ignited this wave of avant-garde electronic music and that's why Schaefer is known as the godfather of sampling
0: that's so cool yeah I never knew any of this stuff
1: yeah it's fascinating and there's there's like so many more important names that I'm, I'm just forced to leave out right now so let's fast forward to the 50s when tape recorders became more accessible and were popping up in studios. Composers were using them in innovative ways, slicing and rearranging pieces of tape, looping them, duplicating them, changing the speed to alter the tuning, reversing them, superimposing them, just all of the things. Um, another fun example, in 1955, Canadian composer Hugh Kane created Tripsity. This one was really cool. It, it's it's based on the sound of a single drop of water that's looped in variable speeds with only 25 splices. One of Schaefer's apprentices, Elian Radig, So she'd been studying all these techniques with tape, but her interests moved more into processing the feedback between tape recorders and a microphone. Here's a bit of her piece, Stress Osaka. So her music was especially disturbing for me. Like And I went down this rabbit hole late at night, which did not help. Um, but it's really interesting stuff. So one more composer I want to mention who famously combined all these techniques, the looping and the delay and the feedback, is American composer Terry Riley. Let's hear a bit of his music for The Gift from 1963. <laughs> Do you recognize that one? I saw your face like light up.
0: <laughs> Terry Riley, yes, I saw him live at Big Ears.
1: Nice. He's a legend. Yeah. This is arguably one of the first remixes ever made. It was created for a theater production. And Riley got the idea for the music while listening to the Chet Baker Quartet playing Miles Davis's So What? It's a complicated process, but Riley explains a bit in an interview with Red Bull Music Academy. Quote, So what is a modal piece that moves between a Dorian mode, moves between D and E flat. So when you move between D and E flat, as you're improvising, you get a modal wash, a no man's land of tonality. I thought it would be an interesting idea to create a completely different, almost orchestral piece out of this improvisation. So I had each player in the quartet solo separately, and I recorded them all separately, and then I cut them up into loops. So then Riley and his engineer came up with this system called the Time Lag Accumulator, where they striped the tape between two Revox tape recorders, feeding sound from the second recorder back to the first to combine it with the original sound, and then varying the intensity of that feedback to shift in and out of phase from nearly perfect unison to off-kilter chaos, which is pretty, pretty neat. And reportedly, when Chet Baker heard the final product, he just said, Far out, man. This is some far out shit. It's <laughs> just the best way to respond to this piece. <laughs> Another cool example of this technique is this 1965 piece from composer Steve Reich called It's Gonna Rain. And they begin to mock
0: him, and they begin to say, it ain't gonna rain! It's gonna rain, 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 it's gonna rain. Do you know
1: this one? This one's cool. You should listen to a second of that.
0: I don't know this song, but I did see also Johnny Greenwood of uh, Radiohead play a Steve Rack piece at Big Ears as well. And it was amazing. And the man played for like 10 minutes and he was done. And that was his performance. Just oh, that's awesome. One song. One piece. Nice, nice.
1: That's great. Yeah. So it's really hard to just pick a couple of clips of, of Terry Riley. There's In C, which was really major. Also... A rainbow and curved air. So many really important compositions. Um, in magnet magazine, Riley says, I found through accident that tape loops build up this long form. I'd sit there listening as this loop was repeating over and over, creating a whole musical form. The way time passes and the way the mind works when it focuses on an object. It's like a meditation. A tape loop is a kind of mantra. Snaps. Oh, I like that.
0: <laughs> yeah. It it is so cool to listen to Terry Riley's music. I mean, just the way he puts in those arpeggios and just kind of spirals into the chaos at times. Just really interesting.
1: Yeah. It'd be neat to see him live. That's really cool. What year was that?
0: Uh, Well, he's played there a, a, a few times. He became like an artist in residence. Oh, nice. If you're a fan of
1: Brian Eno and Robert Fripp, Definitely Riley and Reich were a big inspiration for their collaboration and more on that later. So because of this extended history, it's really difficult to say like so-and-so invented the art of looping. But in any case, it was a very popular technique used in film soundtracks, avant-garde, and definitely psychedelic rock in the late 60s, um, with that repetition used to induce a hypnotic, entrancing, trippy effect a classic example of this would be the Beatles track Tomorrow Never Knows from their 1966 album, Revolver.
0: Turn up your mind, relax, and float downstream. My favorite Beatles record.
1: That's your favorite Beatles record? Oh, awesome. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a good one. McCartney's idea to use prepared tape loops was inspired by Karl Heinz Stockhausen, which was another prolific German composer known for experimenting with tape loops. So these loops, the band prepared them individually at home and they were added to the track live with multiple tape recorders going at the same time, some of which overflowed out of the control room and down the hallway. Like we could seriously have a whole separate conversation just about the insane physical setups required recording with tape. Um, There's some really kooky, some fun ones.
0: I've heard a similar thing with the Bee Gees. I think they had to like loop some tape around the room when they were looping the drum beat. Yeah, for, yeah. Was it staying alive maybe? Because the drummer's mother had fallen ill or was dying or something like that. And so they're like, "Oh, well, how are we going to do this sound while well, he's out of town? Mm-hmm. And they just looped him playing the drums and just like looped the tape around the room and played it.
1: Yeah, there's been some crazy ones. I've heard like tape coming out of the windows into the yards and some elaborate (laughs) setup or whatever. (laughs) But five loops were used in this recording. Two backwards sitar passages, a mellotron, an orchestra playing a B-flat chord, and a sped-up clip of McCartney laughing. Also, looping was popular at this time in Jamaican dub music, osborne ruddock known as king tubby he was a major sound engineer who influenced 60s and 70s dub music let's listen to king tubby meets rockers uptown <laughs> So this tune comes from reggae musician Augustus Pablo's 1976 album of the same name. It was a dub version of the Jacob Miller song, Baby, I Love You So, also produced by Pablo. And according to AllMusic, this song is widely regarded as the finest example of dub ever recorded. So I'm going to take a breath there because we kind of hit a fork in the road at this point. This technology just shoots off into multiple directions. You know, we can talk more about looping like with samplers and with your DAW, um, looping pedals really big and then live looping that we're familiar with today. And I really think they're all very fascinating. So maybe we'll, maybe we'll have this conversation, do a part two of this conversation, be really cool. But just think about it. I like plowed through a century. It's incredible that people were trying to solve these challenges of how to like record and preserve the voice and preserve audio all the way back in 1850. It's really neat.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's a whole century. That's crazy. Right.
1: I never, I never would have thought.
0: (laughs) Wow. And yeah, and I don't know, it's so interesting to think back, especially in the 1800s, where you were talking about the gramophone and how, you know, before that, it was a lot of, you would have to go to the chamber hall to listen to music. And then there was this whole invention of, uh, you know, recording with the grooves, um, and the thing that, uh, who was it, um, Thomas Edison that turned into the stylus and cutting grooves into the cylinders cylinders made of tinfoil. And just like from there, things really took off, you know, but it, to even think about someone wanting to loop sound that early it just blows my mind. We yeah. go from the yeah. concert hall to looping, like not very far in between.
1: Not at all. And there were lots of composers getting into it. It's 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 a really fun rabbit hole to go down if you're interested in that kind of history and you like electronic music and ambient looped music. It's cool.
0: Yeah. I'm sure there are probably a million books out there, but I'm curious to know if, if anyone in the store has a favorite book on the history of listening to music or a history of music that includes certain things about that. I'd love to read it. Um, I do have mm-hmm. a book called Yeah, Yeah, Yeah from Bob Stanley, who uh, I believe was in the group Saint Etienne, but he wrote History of Modern Pop. And I haven't read it yet, but it's been sitting on my shelf and I can't wait to read it. But I wonder how far back it goes. Um, That'd be interesting to read. And then also, I did want to just say that staying Alive, when Dennis Byron, he had to leave because his mother died. When they're in the midst of recording, they tried a drum machine, but it it didn't it sound very good. It wasn't what they're really looking for. But when they had already, when they listened to what he had already recorded, they decided to take two bars from that and just re-record them as just a recurring loop on a separate tape. And nice, yeah. And they said that it just had this more human feel that they weren't getting from the drum machine. And yeah, I just I think that that was a pretty big moment in time. But I love that. Yeah, they wrapped it over a mic stand, a plastic reel, and laid it laid it <laughs> down on the track. Super cool.
1: Yeah, you do what you gotta do. Yeah.
0: So interesting, all of that. And I've been really interested in um, the creation of records as we know them today, and
1: mm-hmm. the
0: invention of the LP. When and what happened, and why, and all of that. And so that's what I want to talk about today. But it, you mentioned a lot of things that relate to this whole invention as well, the LP with the gramophone and all of that. So a lot of overlap already, which is kind of fun. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, so, I mean, should I get into it? Yeah, absolutely. I'm ready. I don't have a lot of, yeah, I don't have a lot of fun uh, clips of sounds, but the history in itself I think is pretty neat. And here we are in a record store, so we should talk about records. It's apropos, yeah. But before we get to the LP, we sort of have to understand where we're coming from. And I mentioned, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, we were listening to concerts and concert halls and going to shows and experiencing live music back then in the early 1800s and even further back. But then a French inventor named Edward Leon Scott. What? These French guys were really up on their things, huh? Because you were talking yeah, about they a, were busy bees. Yeah, you were talking about a lot of French composers, but this brilliant French inventor named Edward Leon Scott he created a specialist device that used this vibrating pin that graphically represented sounds onto paper discs, known as the phonograph, uh, which I think is a perfect name for that. And then in 1878, so just. Mm, a little under 20 years later, Thomas Edison then took that concept and turned it into a machine that was capable of replaying the sounds that it had recorded. So that device used a stylus that was designed to cut grooves into those cylinder discs made of tinfoil, which you mentioned.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: And of course, the quality wasn't really good, mostly used for speeches, super quiet. About a decade later... German-born U.S. inventor Emil Berliner patented the first record player, the gramophone, which you also mentioned. This device had to be manually operated, so cranking that stuff, to 70 RPMs, rotations per minute, and it functioned by playing a rubber vulcanite disc about 7 inches in size with small lateral grooves cut into its exterior. So then, over the next 13 years, records as we know it, then would undergo a lot of material alterations and changes until about 1901, where Victor Company uh, released its Red Seal line, which played shellac records in the form of a 10-inch 78 RPM. So the 78 RPM proved to be the most superior for the next about 47 years. Sousa, John Philip Sousa, the famous conductor and composer, king of the bandstand. He was frustrated with this whole like putting music on to discs and listening to it at home alone because he thought that music should be experienced with others. And of course, someone being a conductor, you know, we've talked about how I I feel like the conductor is part of the whole art of classical music. He's the movement, whereas the the orchestra is, a, in a way, movement, too, with the violin bows going up and down, but the sound as well. But then the conductor is kind of like the dancer almost, you know, with their arms yeah. waving up and down. And so he was frustrated that now that people are going to be listening to, to music in their homes— you know, this changed how we were listening to music, this invention of the 78. And it changed writing styles too. Songwriters were shortening their songs so that it would fit onto the 78 and everything was broken into chunks and people were worried, oh no, this, like our musical attention span was becoming shorter. That sounds familiar. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I know, right? Technology, again, making our attention span shorter, but in this sense, it's Related to the, the medium of the TikTok music and the technology. songs now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But since, so let's talk a little bit, I guess, about the format of the 78. So the grooves were more spaced out. So the record had to spin fast. A standard 10 inch 78 couldn't hold more than about three minutes of music per side. And they were typically made of shellac, which I mentioned, and had the consistency of maybe a china plate. So they're very thick very heavy and they broke very easily 3 minutes of music per side that's not very much when you know most people were really into classical music at the time you would go to a place to a concert hall and hear you know these expansive works John Philip Sousa maybe would would be one of your conductors. To limit those songs to three minutes per side is just not ideal, right? And since classical music songs were longer than the records could fit, some songs were created with almost like a fade-out so that they could transition the song to the next side. You could flip and hear the rest of that song. Hmm. So it changed how songs were created uh, in general songs were written. But in addition to that, during the early years of the world of World War II, the demand for shellac skyrocketed. But why? Shellac was not only used to produce records, it was also used to produce explosives. Oh. There was a lot of
1: crossover like in this research, you know, because we are <laughs> like in between world wars right now, and a lot of this technology was used for like, you know, communicating. Right. Um, on the battlefront and things like that. So yeah, I I did stumble upon a lot of those those kinds of connections as well. Did you get a lot of that too?
0: Oh yeah. That's a, yeah. I love that we have such a an overlap here with looping and LPs. I mean also looping just in a general sense, the spinning record. Yeah. That's yeah. the book I
1: wanna read. I wanna like the, in the context of what was happening in the world wars and how that technology was being used that then got turned into this these music mediums formats.
0: Yeah. No, that's, that's crazy. that would be really interesting. A good documentary too. Because I think they even had record dances where you would go and turn in your records, but I'll get into that a little bit more here. When World War oh, II goody. began, the War Production Board, which was a government agency responsible for supervising war production under Franklin Roosevelt, ordered a 70% cut in the production of new phonograph records. Uh, record production consumed about 30% of the nation's supply of shellac, and this cut in production of shellac records was placed with the production of signal flares and exp- explosives, as well as artillery shell cones. Coding. So not only was there a dramatic cut in production of records, shellac records, there was also this call to arms. So if you had records that were broken or chipped or out of date or just like ready to be trashed, you could donate them to be recycled in a sense. And that would, I don't know, I guess people were encouraged to help in weaponry supply, but also to boost soldier morale by donating their records, their shellac records. So strange to think of, right?
1: Yeah, it's, it's like this poetic kind of depressing metaphor of like our precious music records being repurposed for war yeah yeah
0: yeah so weird. And then also the 78s were flat and they're easier to store, but uh, 78s were recorded and played back acoustically. So usually without any electric amplifiers or microphones until about 1925, which I feel like you kind of covered as well. But 78s were obsolete by about 1960 and the LP was actually invented earlier than that, but just to say that these dinosaurs of records, the 78s, were obsolete by 1960. So let's get into the actual thing I'm excited to talk about here, which is the LP. The prototype of the LP was the soundtrack disc used by Vitaphone Motion Picture Sound System, developed by Western Electric and introduced in 1926 for soundtrack purposes. The less than five minute playing time on the conventional 78 discs was not acceptable for this. They needed at least about 11 minutes long enough to accompany about a thousand foot reel of 35 millimeter film projected at 24 frames per second, so the disc diameter was increased to 16 inches and the speed was reduced to 33 and a third revolutions per minute. Unlike the descendants of this version of the LP, this prototype was made with the same larger groove as used by the 78. But in 1948, thanks to Columbia CBS, we were introduced to the world's first long play vinyl record, the LP, created by Peter Goldmark. This vinyl record had the capacity of around 21 minutes per side and was about 12 inches wide. Our... Gold standard, 12-inch, 33 and a third RPM. And this changed the face of the music industry from here on out to the more album-centric format that we love and know today. But shortly after, RCA Victor announced their own LP, which turned at 45 RPMs and was just 7 inches in size. But those became more popular for singles and so the 12 inch 33 and a third was better used for album size records
1: you know what's interesting too is like we think about well maybe I shouldn't speak for everyone but I often make the mistake of thinking about shifts in how music was created just being a function of I don't know culture and and interests, and oh we're just we're making three minute long you know verse bridge hook kind of things now but Again, here we are taking for granted like the technology and how much right. the medium is impacting the trajectory of the whole culture of how it's you know true. we re- how we experience and how we create music. It's really
0: cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not even just the medium in the the record, will be at seventy eight, thirty three and thirty or forty five. It's like the materials that the mediums were created from. Also, yeah. And the progression of uh, science and understanding those materials and, um, gosh, and how they were also impacted by wars and cultural yeah. <laughs> like, drama. But, you know, instead of the hard shellac, the 78s were made from the 12-inch LPs and the 45s were, or the 7-inch records, were Uh, made of polyvinyl carbonate. So that's how we have vinyl records. The 12-inch discs were, at the time, mostly used for serious classical music, and they provided a much quieter playing surface. And at the time, they could hold up to about 15 minutes per side. Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, performed by Philadelphia Orchestra under Leopold Stokowski, was the first 12-inch recording issued. So let's listen to a little bit of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. ¶¶ So yeah, it was the microgroove that ultimately proved the crucial element of the long playing disc. And and that was again all thanks to Peter Goldmark and his team at Columbia, which engineers had perfected the summer of 1947. A little bit on the market here by 1952. So when the LP was introduced in 1948, the 78 was still the conventional format for phonograph records. But by 1952, 70, it still accounted for slightly more than half of the units sold in the United States and just under half of the dollar sales. The 45, oriented towards the single song, accounted for just over 30% of unit sales and just over 25% of dollar sales. And the LP re- represented not quite 17% of unit sales and just over 26% of dollar sales. So thank you, Wikipedia, for those stats. <laughs> Uh, Yeah, okay. And then I just probably want to just round it out here with this by saying that by introducing the long play, the LP, it changed the way record labels, musicians, everyone created, packaged, and listened to music. And because longer musical works required multiple 70 RPM discs, the most popular at the time, the LP, really shifted... The recording industry for jazz musicians, for classical works, because they were, you know, usually the nature of their songs are usually a bit longer. You know, a listener could listen to an entire symphonic work or a, or an extended jazz composition without having to change records every few minutes or change sides. So, yeah, it really changed the music industry in a big way. And, you know, to this day, we still listen and love to listen to vinyl records. There's nothing quite like it, and I think it's still just continuing to surge more and more. Despite being expensive to make, expensive to buy, there's still just this really fun, tangible element to owning a record of music. And then, yeah, just say a 12-inch record today has about 19 minutes of sound per side about 300 to 400 lines per inch uh, in grooves. And if you didn't know, I should have probably said this earlier, but the stylus creates the sound as it moves through those grooves up and down. So yeah, same same technology, really, if you go back all the way to the 1800s and looked at how Edison was using the stylus and how Edouard de Leon Scott was using that vibrating pin, you know, those are they're mm-hmm. making these grooves that that could represent those sounds. So yeah, that's pretty much it. I have a it's question just, for you. Oh yeah.
1: As a vinyl enthusiast. And you kind of touched on it a bit in, in your in your words just now, but like why has the vinyl LP, why has that medium stood the test of time? Why are we still so in love with that? Why didn't things like the mini disc survive? <laughs> Or even CDs are kind of being you know, falling out. I guess we're having like a renaissance, a love affair again with, uh, you know, cassettes and stuff like that. But like, why aren't we obsessed with 8-tracks? What is it about vinyl records that have stood the test of time?
0: That's a good question. I want to say that like 8-tracks probably didn't last because... You know, you're limited to those eight tracks, right? Four <laughs> songs on each side. But, like when you skip it, it skips right in the middle of the song. like if i if I'm remembering that even correctly, honestly, it's been so long since I've messed with an eight track. I mean, I'm sure that there's some nostalgia and novelty in eight tracks and cassettes. I mean, I think there's a resurgence of cassette cassettes right now because they are cheaper to to make and especially right now the limited pressing plants and whatnot to get your vinyl pressed as an indie musician up against like the adels of the world pressing maybe way too many copies of their album and just leaving excess stock in stores to only go on clearance but there is this nostalgia in CDs and tapes and eight tracks. But I think you with vinyl, you have not only the nostalgia, the tangibility, I don't know, something about sitting at home and listening to a record with your headphones. I, you know, I don't know. I just, I don't know. I don't know what it is exactly, <laughs> but I love yeah. it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I love, I love this old tech. I, I get it too. um My dear father, who, who passed away a couple of months ago, may he rest in peace. Yeah. He, Definitely was a lover of music. I get it completely from him. And he has left me some really cool equipment Aww. that I'm even more excited to play around with, including um, like a reel-to-reel and um, some other fun things. So now that I've, I'm have i kind of digging into this history, maybe I'll be inspired to conduct some of my own fun experiments with this Yeah, tech.
0: you should. I can't wait yeah. to hear what you come up with. But yeah, I think there's just something really romantic about records and sitting down and opening the album jacket and... Pulling the record out of the sleeve rather than cracking open a plastic CD case jewel case.
1: What about mini discs? Were you were you into that? At I never
0: all? had a mini disc. Never, not once. I
1: got um. I had a Björk box set that was all mini discs, and I was like, "Oh, this is going to be the future." And then that was it. <laughs> never bought another one.
0: I remember when I got uh, my first Philips DM to listen to MP3s, like before I had an iPhone. Even I
1: remember that. I loved that. Or an iPod. You know what (laughs) I thought the future was going to be? Remember, you could you could record MP3s to like DVDs, and then you could just cram like hours of music onto one disc. I was like, oh, this is next level. Yes. No, didn't didn't really take
0: the writable, readable CD-ROM burnable. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't even have, like, my computers now, there's no CD drive, so. Right, right. And I know they don't make cars now with with CD players. It's not the standard anymore, so. Yep. I guess. Times are changing. That probably plays a part, too, in vinyl industry having its, you know, renaissance because you can sit at home and make a whole experience of listening to records and, um, yeah, and, and probably some of that being handed down to younger generations from their parents. You know, this is my dad's, you know, uh, whatever, credence record. Um, probably maybe, something special about that as and maybe well.
1: Maybe it's just, it's the record player itself too. Like that's that's a piece of technology that's never going to be archaic or like fall out of use. Like we have so much technology that's, like iPhones, for example, we use them and blah, blah, blah. But then the, it changes and then you can't really use them as stuff improves. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? But right, you can never definitely. you can never not be able to use a record player. It's never gonna go out of style. Yeah.
0: And they're making them newer and better and fancier. And now you can connect your turntable to a Bluetooth speaker. <laughs> I mean, they're they're even making advances uh, for those old school music listening devices as well. So yeah. I mean, I just see it advancing further, but still keeping that simple functionality of a turntable as well
1: something else that's really cool and i'm so mad at myself because i didn't i didn't save this link but i'm going to look for it but i was reading about um different efforts like at the smithsonian or different groups who are trying to restore those old old recordings like old paper um maybe not so oh, yeah. much the tin foil, but like those really old mediums <laughs> that kind of wear out and they're figuring out really clever ways to digitally restore the audio from oh Information like from an image, just like the scrawlings of the grooves made on these these old cylinders, these old, you know, paper, figuring out yeah. a way to translate that back into to digitized sound, which is really, really fascinating. So we might, you know, in the upcoming years, be able to hear more of, of those recordings, more of that music that was recorded in the 1800s, which is neat.
0: Yeah, well, that'd be really, really cool to hear because, yeah, I thought I read that you couldn't replay those tinfoil discs yeah. or paper discs once you played them once. Or Yeah, they, yeah they'd so, wear out immediately. But using some like advanced digital imagery of those grooves, I could see how that would be maybe a way of getting uh some of that sound back yeah it's neat well this has been a really cool conversation yeah it's um it's fascinating to see how far the music industry has come just in these two two boosts of technology and like i said like maybe an lp doesn't seem like a technological advancement but it was that was major yeah um yeah yeah because now it's so analog to us compared to what we have, <laughs> right? Like, with streaming and digital, yeah.
1: So yeah, we should uh, we should do this again. Like, there's so much interesting technology to revisit yeah. and talk about, and see how it's impacted us now and how it's shifted the trajectory of the entire industry. So let's do this again. Yeah.
0: Let's do it. <laughs> well, cool. Well, let's call it a day. I feel like we've spent so much time here in the story today. Yeah, being um, super nerds. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to stock up on records before I go and then listen to them on my turntable. You
1: should have a turntable installed in your car. Maybe that's the next good oh, thing. Oh, snap. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure someone's done that already.
0: <laughs> well, we'll catch you next time.
1: Yeah, thanks for hanging out with us in the store. Hope you come back soon. Yeah. Bye. We'll see you later. Bye, everybody.
0: Record Store Society is hosted by Natalie White and Tara Davies. If you'd like to contact the show, visit our website at recordstoresociety.com. Or you can find us on all your favorite social media sites with the handle at Record Store Society.